Steve, I need to tell you that you recently changed my life. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. What was what? Well, I don't know why I'm taking credit for this. Well, thank yeah, you, and you don't know. It could be for the worse. Not I don't know what it was. It could be. So, it could be terrible. Yeah. Tell no, me. no. You had mentioned to me that you had recently purchased some legal notepads, a paper to have I on did. your desk to take notes, and this is was I think an outgrowth of your exploration of the getting things done method by David Allen. Because you were like, you were labeling these notepads, like putting them full. I was obsessed. Oh, anyway, yeah. yep, yep, yep. Uh, you kind of inspired me because as I work with my clients, I find that I like to take notes on kind of key things, key moments of our conversation. And I've been doing that digitally on my keyboard, and it just feels kind of, ugh, I don't know, kind of dirty, kind of distracting because you can hear my keyboard probably like clickety clacking in the background, and like I don't know, it's kind of disruptive. So I. Based on your inspiration, recently purchased a notepad, paper, a paper notepad. I don't even know if I need, do we need to specify paper now? Like it's not digital. Paper, it's paper a real notepad. thing. I mean, you're, you are differentiating yes. the digital notes from the physical notes. So, um, And I've been using it during my coaching sessions and I feel like it has seriously made a difference. It could be all in my head. I'm not sure. But like there's something about them being able to see me like putting my head down. They know I have a pen in my hand and I'm just like, you know, they can tell I'm taking a note. I'm paying attention mm-hmm. to what they're saying. And actually, I am like better, I think, than I was trying to do it digitally because when I was doing it digitally, I was always kind of like self-conscious about the fact that I was taking a note and how that would be perceived. And now I'm not. I'm like all in. So are you writing down different things than you did before? Um, I think that's a good question. I'd have to like look back at my notes and see, but it feels different. Like, And because it's paper and pen instead of like typing, I'm also able to like circle and like star things. Like instead of just having like a block of notes. Yeah. Right. I can be like, this is out of all these things that I'm just kind of jotted down. This, this, and this are like the, you know, the action items or like the thing I want to circle, see if I can circle our conversation back toward in a few minutes, that kind of thing. Yeah. I like that too. And and you could just like over on the margin, like here's a term that I need to look up or don't forget about this date or something like yep. I, I find when I'm in like a word processor sort of structure that I think differently than when I can just write anywhere on the page and draw and circle and underline and highlight things and yeah all that. I agree. And it's kind of much to my chagrin because I love digital and I love being paperless. But in this particular use case, paper is, is serving me much, much better. So thank you for the inspiration on that. You're welcome. So after you are done writing the note... Uh, what do you do with the paper? So far, I've just been keeping it on the paper with the exception of action items, which would then go into my digital action lists. However, I've been thinking about transferring the pertinent information into my CRM. I haven't done this yet, but I'm thinking about it because it would be nice to have a record of like the key takeaways maybe from each yeah. conversation that's actually permanently preserved on the client record, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I do as well. Like It adds an extra step, but I like the extra processing of like, I just got all the ideas out on the paper mm-hmm. and then I come through afterward, you know, whether that's right after or I tear this out and throw it in the inbox and process it later, that I'm going through it again to say, okay, here's the action item. Here's exactly what needs to happen for this project to be complete. Mm-hmm. That goes into Todoist. Here are the salient parts that I want to preserve in the client file and then the rest of it can just get shredded. Yeah. Or maybe I take the notes and, and file it if there's if I think I would still want the paper for some something else in the future. Right. Kind of depends. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. But, but there are calls where I'm on like the, everything on the notes was action items and I'll just tear out the page and 
put it in the inbox and say, log all of these as tasks. Mm -hmm. And then I throw away the paper when it's done. That's cool. So it's like a, it's a, it's a new, well, new. I was going to say it's a, a new and unique capturing method, you know, new to us digital natives, I guess. I don't know. It's not new. It's paper. <laughs> paper and pen. <laughs> but new in this setting, I guess, to, 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 the way, to the way that I work. Yeah. Great. Legal pads, 10 out of 10. Yes. Would recommend. Hello there, dear listener. I am Steve. And I'm Tyler. And welcome to another episode of It's Not About the Money, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to creating and running small businesses. Tyler has a financial coaching business. I run a tax practice where both small business owners like you and this podcast is our attempt to make sense of the world one episode at a time. And today, Steve, it's happening. It's, it's happening. finally happening. It's happening. We love to talk about you need a budget. And so we went and did a book club episode about the book, You Need a Budget by Jesse Meekham. Hooray. This is the first time I have read the book, even after having used the system for years and years. I think you've read it twice now. Is that true? I did. I read it a long time ago and I reread it again just the other week in preparation for this episode. But I actually want to ask you about that right off the bat. So as someone who has used YNAB for a long time, and been really familiar with the YNAB method and the software, did reading the book make a difference to you? Like, did you learn anything that you didn't already know? Or was your practical experience basically all you need? I felt like reading the book was a reminder of the philosophy behind it all, sort of a, a take me up to the 30,000 foot view and remind me, what is this all about? Why are we doing this? Why are we what, doing this? Yeah. What benefit are we going to get out of this? That's the thing that I found really useful from this book. Okay. Yeah, I kind of felt similar similarly. And although I'm very steeped in the YNAB method and practices and software, I found that 30,000 foot view very refreshing. And it actually recalibrated my <laughs> my own budget and my own approach to budgeting. And of course, consequently, my coaching in ways that surprised me quite a bit, actually. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I remember feeling kind of called out by uh, this one uh, <laughs> quote of like, you're overdoing it when you obsess over your budget. Check it several times a day and talk about it to anyone who will give you an ear. Oh. It's great that you're really into your budget. It's a thing of beauty, I know, but try to keep it from consuming you. Check in every few days, make sure you're staying on track, then go on living your life. I don't think that applies to us. Come on. <laughs> at, at the time, I felt called out by that. Uh, and and uh, I read the book it was probably a couple of months ago now. And, and since then, I have checked my budget less frequently. And oh, I don't know if that is a result, it, uh, not consciously, but just that I've sort of uh, let that go a little bit and gone to living my life more rather than yeah. focusing on it so much. I don't know, yeah. but I, I found that interesting. So I guess it sort of did change my behavior as well. <laughs> In that you budget less or you check your budget less. That's well, ch yeah, checking the budget less. Right, exactly. Well, what were like you- Like I'm not obsessing about it all the time. When you were obsessing over it, like what what did you enjoy about checking it? Like what were you checking it for? Was it just to see how your spending was going or you just want to see, what is my net worth? What is my net worth? I mean, I don't know. Like what what was the, the draw? Uh, it's like, uh, I know that new transactions have come in and I want to make sure they get categorized correctly and they- have the right notes in the in the memo field and the 
payees are correct. Like all of all of the little details, I want to make sure they're all correct. And you know, I, I can do that just as well once a week as I can every day. Oh, I see. What you're so saying. it doesn't need. So that's that's kind of what has changed. Yeah. So you still do it. You just do it. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all. And it's still mm-hmm, all exactly. Stuff. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I also feel called out by that, and I probably that's why I don't remember that quote. I must have just blocked that out because I I still like obsessing over my budget. Although. I mean, you know, when I was training to be a YNAB coach, they did kind of call us all out on that in our cohort. They're like, look, you need to realize that a lot of people that you're going to work with are are not going to be like you. Oh, yeah. Basically, well, yeah. Like, like, they're hiring you because you are the way that you are. You know the things that you know. that You do the things, you know. So the expectation shouldn't be that everyone that you work with is going to become like you and use use YNAB with the same fervor and, and obsession maybe that you do. You just need to get it to work for them. Right. So that, that is, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. I think that's true of a lot of service businesses. Like as a tax pro, I have to resist the urge to use all of the IRS terminology and like explain things in accounting terms because that's, that's not what they hired me for. Right. They they hired me to know that stuff and to tell them what the relevant parts that they need to know, explain it in a way that they understand, but not to exactly convert them into accountants. You're there to make their life more convenient and more optimal for their situation, right? Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. I need to think about that a little bit. I I actually don't... The thing that I obsess over my budget with more than checking it is kind of like playing with the way my categories are organized. I like to switch it up periodically. But anyway, we we can talk more about that later, right? So can I just share... uh, uh, I made a list of... Five things. We don't have to go through the whole list, but I, I kind of want to touch a couple of, touch on a couple of these. Like as I was reading the book, changes that I made, either to how I think about budgeting and YNAB or how I actually do it. And I kind of wanted to to share the first one of these that I that I wrote down, which is that I want my budgeting sessions to be sacred again. <laughs> this is not doing me any favors in terms of making me look not like a budgeter. <laughs> but what do I mean is I think over time. I got more interested in the details of like, yeah, what are the transactions? How am I trending on my spending for certain categories? Whatever, making sure it's my plan is coming to be. But it got pretty rote, right? Like I had a little routine when I got paid. I would log into YNAB, reconcile my accounts, sign the money. I use targets pretty heavily in YNAB. And so a lot of it's just automated. And it take took away the process or took away from the process of examining my desires and answering the question, like, what do I want this money to do for me? Because I'd already kind of like based on historical data, I just kind of figured out what it probably would do for me based on my past behaviors, which is totally a different question than what do I want this money to do for me? Mm -hmm. Like that process of having that conversation with myself and like, taking ownership of it and deciding and like maybe directing it in a way that's different from last month or the month before that, according to what I desire right now, like that's, I wanted like reading this book really made me want to have that experience again. And so that's what I've been focusing on among other things since reading the book. And it's awesome. Mm, I like that. I think I tend to fall in the trap of, uh, of bookkeeping because uh, that's the thing that I love to do anyway. <laughs> right. And so, right. Let's let's make sure all these details are correct and and uh, the historical reports are an accurate reflection of reality. Yeah, what what actually happened? 
but the power of of scarcity r- really is what this is about. Is like yes. let's force you to acknowledge this is the amount of money you have right now uh, that has to do all the things you want and need it to do until you get paid next. And so, what do you want it to do in that time? Yeah, yeah. I find that when I focus on the bookkeeping aspects of it more than on the values and desires aspect of it, I still spend I spend out of line with my values more often, actually, because like I know I can just kind of spend I can do whatever I want basically with and I can just roll with the punches. Why not roll number three, right? And like cover the overspending. And so it's just like slipping if you know if this isn't maintained your your kind of like present and future focus on this it's easy to slip into like let's retroactively just fix whatever happened which there's nothing wrong with that right like i'm not going into debt my net worth is still growing as i like save for retirement like nothing is wrong with it inherently but it's not a joyful experience it's more just like living by the seat of my pants and i found that i was living more by the seat of my pants spending more by the seat of my pants than doing it with intention which is kind of the point of YNAP is to get you to be intentional and like be in charge and in control of your money, right? Yeah, and not in the sense of you're restricting yourself so no. much as you know, like you've taken the time to understand what is what is it that what are my priorities with this finite resource and then letting that guide your behavior rather than the behavior sort of trickling back into well how are we going to fix that in the in the numbers here? Yeah, yeah. Given what we did. And, you know, this brings up a really interesting question to me, which is how does budgeting the YNAB way, or in general, how does budgeting change when you have plenty of money available to you versus when money is tight? And my theory is, my working Uh, theory is, when you have plenty of money, you spend less intentionally. Yeah, that makes sense. I talk to people all the time who have plenty of money and and these are not my clients, by the way. I'm talking like when I try to talk to my friends and family about this kind of stuff, right? And they're like, uh, we don't care. Uh-huh. Like we have plenty of money. Like we're not in debt. Like whatever, it's fine. I'm like, but, but are you living your true best life? Like, sure, you're fine, but are you great? And then they're like, okay, go away. I don't <laughs> want to talk to you anymore. That's not, you know. Because uh, I really, you know, when there's, when there's, when that scarcity isn't present and you're not feeling it, you don't have to make decisions about what you care about most. So it's easy uh, to blow a bunch yeah. of money on stuff that's like kind of like fun or cool in the moment, but you don't really care about, right? And like the more margin you have in your life and the more money you have available that above like meeting your basic needs, the easier I feel it is in my observation to just like not be intentional about it. Kind of just do whatever feels good in the moment, which is not inherently bad. Again, it's just like not necessarily the best, I guess. Uh, yeah. Like if you want to make the most of this life that you have and the resources that you have, you can be more intentional about it. And I guess that's the optimizer in me speaking and not everyone is an optimizer. So that's important to keep in mind. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. So maybe the thing that draws you to this uh, would not be as big of a draw to someone else in your same situation. Right. Okay. Well, here's a quote that's sort of related to that. Maybe we could talk about. Rule two moves the question from, can I afford this, to, does this move me closer to my goals? I love this. I love this so much. Because the question, can I afford this, when when money is not tight, the answer to that is probably always yes. Like, 
uh, you, you have right. the cash available like you uh if by by afford if you mean is there money in the bank to cover this expense the answer is almost always yes yeah uh and so then what what does that mean anymore but reframing it as does this move me closer to my goals that brings that intention back into yeah. is this the highest and best use of this money right now based on what i want the most right now and value the most right now Mm-hmm. I, not just what feels good uh, for the next five minutes. Yeah, I you know, this applies across the board too. I mentioned, you know, how is budgeting different when there's plenty of money versus when money is tight? And I think maybe uh, the principles are the same, but when there's plenty of money, you just have to kind of like self-impose the feeling of scarcity. I had a session somewhat recently with a client who makes around a million dollars a year in income, which is a lot more than what I'm used to dealing with in my life, full disclosure. Right. But but he had the same stress and the same questions about money as the people that I work with that make $100,000 a year or thereabouts, right? And that was fascinating to me. I just, I'm still having my mind blown about the, blown by the conversation that I had with him. Um, really cool guy, had a lot of awesome stuff going on, but felt scarcity in the same way that we all do. And I think that's interesting. And so- the conversation with him wasn't like, can I afford this? Because most things he can afford, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, he and his wife had a desire to become homeowners, and they live in a kind of expensive area. And that was their desire and their decisions with money day-to-day, though they were not stressing them out financially in any way. They didn't have any debt. They weren't like you know sinking in problems or anything financially, as one would hope with that kind of income. But like they were not getting any closer to being able to own a home in the in the neighborhood where they wanted to live. Interesting, yeah. But they could easily so it, afford it if they just like <laughs> figured out that that was their goal and then applied their money to that goal. They could afford a home very easily, very soon. They just hadn't figured that out yet. Yeah, it just takes some self imposed discipline of I want to focus on this thing right now instead yeah. of you know, just kind of letting life happen. Yeah. Fascinating. So I, I'm i going to just continue on my tirade here and tell you what I changed about how I budget based on this, the reading of this book. Um, yeah. Uh, and one of the, this is something, uh, you know, these are things that I used to do actually, and then I got away from with additional experience and whatever. And now I'm going back kind of like to the roots, right? So one of that the things- kind of reminds me of our episodes about getting things done. Yes. You reread that book and then sort of went back to the basics on that system. Maybe this is just a thing we need to do with these systems. I I totally agree. Because like periodically, you know, the laws of thermodynamics apparently apply to these, (laughs) to these systems just as much as they do to the physical universe, perhaps. Right. So like, you know, you, you, you can, you bring some order, you create some order out of the chaos and then life happens and it kind of just devolves until you kind of like bring it back in in, in line. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I was doing most recently is I arranged my budget categories by, I don't know what you want to call it, domain, sort of. So like I had a group of budget categories related to owning a home, a different group related to owning a vehicle, owning a dog. Does that make sense? So it was like by right. Do- yeah, domain, right. right? And the categories were grouped together under those headers because I was more interested in the reporting aspect of it. Like I wanted to see how much does it cost me to own a home across all these yeah. different budget categories or own a car, et cetera, et cetera. So, and 
that's cool. There's a lot of value to that, right? I, I Again, I'm not saying that what I was doing was wrong in any way. It's just was maybe further from the spirit of the YNAB method than what I'm doing now, which is I totally blasted that apart and I rearranged my budget categories according to my priorities. And some such things as... related to owning a home are higher priorities, such as paying the mortgage, <laughs> than yeah. uh, other things like uh, having my home smell good because I have a subscription to a scent <laughs> diffuser. For example, right? Like, oh, really? There's okay. definitely a different. Uh -huh. There's a whole spectrum of priorities, even within those domain topics. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, okay, that's interesting. Go and, on. And uh, so that that was a big change that I made, actually. Um, and it's had some fascinating. Like, I don't know. I didn't expect it to make that big of a difference, but actually, it really, really has. When it comes to the every time I get paid and I do rule one of YNAB, which is to give every dollar a job. Because I've organized my categories by priority now, it's kind of like just start at the top and go to the bottom instead of, well, I don't know. That's more uh, of a yeah. logistical thing. Well, yeah, but it's it makes it very clear. Like the, the important things are at the top and they need to get funded first. And then if there's money left over, then we can do the less important things. Yeah. And because I've been doing the YNM method for so long, I'm in a place where I'm several months ahead in my finances instead of behind. So I like... When new money comes yeah. into me, it's like I'm. It's easy for me to budget towards the future things, but because I use targets so heavily and become ahead, like these are all like good problems to have. Don't get me wrong, but I was relying way too much on just automating it by the targets that I had set, which like removes any thought. It removes asking myself like, what do I want this money to do for me before I get paid again? I guess I like pre-answered that question with the targets, you know, but I wasn't making any live decisions and and what. A consequence of that was, is that I wasn't making big progress on my big financial goals because I had been using targets for every category. Like all of my money was spoken for according to the targets that I'd set. So there wasn't much extra money, if that makes sense, to put towards like a new, fun, exciting goal that really rolls oh, my socks okay. up and down and gets me excited. Like, like, like a specific, like, so I was like, for example, I was setting aside a hundred dollars a month towards travel. Because like I know that sometimes I want to travel, and it would be nice to have some money in that category when the urge strikes, I guess, or like when I feel like travel. But I'm finding it right. much more useful to be like, I want to visit my friend so and so in this state, and it's going to cost about this much money, and I can allocate money to that goal way faster than a hundred dollars a month and get it, get it completed way faster. If it's a higher priority, this sounds so basic, but like I don't know. Does that make sense at all? Am I am I going crazy here? Uh, it does. Yeah, that makes me wonder. On my my personal fund money budget, which we talked about, I, there's the family. Yeah, budget which layer? There's there's the daybreak <laughs> daybreak tax budget, and there's the there's the fund money budget, which is just mine to do whatever I want with, kind of thing. I do have it where everything has a target, and that covers almost all of the dollars that come in every month to mm -hmm. that. Yeah, budget. Which is, we must say, very convenient and easy. It is. And nice. Yeah. So I get the, you know, it transfers in like every two weeks and I just go into the next month and say, uh, automate the, whatever the button's called. Auto assign. And it just fills in as far as it can. And then yeah. when the next one comes in, I click the button again and it fills in all the rest of them. And then that month is ready before the month starts kind of thing. Yep. yep. But 
this gives me something to think about of that if every dollar is already spoken for, then so maybe I've just already answered the question of what do I want the money to do when I set the targets. Right. But there's, so maybe that's okay. I don't know. Yes, it is okay. And there's not a right or wrong way to do this, but but there's it's a trade-off, right? And so what you're trading off for the convenience of having your budget like template basically preset and automated, what you're trading away is maybe some of the empowerment and excitement that you get from kind of making shorter term decisions about what you're, you're how to like concentrate your focus basically of what you want your money to do. Okay. Yes. That's a great way to say it. it cause, it, cause it is not quite as exciting as it was before I had right. all the targets set up when, when it's like, well, I, okay, I got this money and I don't know how far it's going to go. Let's see what we can do with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was, uh, and now it's like, well, and it, the, the amount coming in, will cover all of these things. I don't have to think about it. Yes. But then, you know, then it's not, I don't get that uh, little thrill of like, hey, I thought about what I want this money to do now. I thought about it again, and I've decided this, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. Sort yeah. Of thing. Well, it's kind of like, you know, the way it sounds like we were both kind of on a, on a similar track before reading this book for a long time, which is kind of basically we've been doing YNAB long enough that we had a really good sense of our true expenses, which is a big mm-hmm. part of the YNAB method, right? It's like, Basically, what that means is you look at all the expenses that could occur throughout the year that are irregular, but you know that you need to be saving up for, and you basically make everything a monthly expense. You divide all your, you divide all your large irregular expenses into monthly bills, basically, right? So the money is always right. there when it's due. It's great, but I think I, for my own taste, again, this is just the influence of the book on me. So I, I, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but I kind of took that to an extreme where I made everything a true expense. Like someday I will travel. And so I'll just like tuck money away for that. Again, is there anything wrong with that? No. Was it exciting? Also, no. <laughs> Does that make <laughs> right. sense? So, yeah. So, and so like the, this, the thrill that I got when I changed that to visit such and such a friend in this state you know, I know I'm going to need to pay for Airbnbs, gas for the car, whatever, you know, maybe dog sitter, depending on, it, you know, it comes out to like not that much in this particular case, like maybe $1,200 or something. And like, that's something that I could fund today if I just pulled money from a future month and just like dumped it in there. But mm. because I had broken everything into true expenses and just funded it hundred dollars at a time, like that would never even occur to me. It's like, oh, I could go on this trip tomorrow if I wanted to. Right. Where otherwise it's, you're, you're waiting a year for that much to accumulate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all of these other things are also accumulating, but but being able to recognize, hey, this is an opportunity with what I already have here ready to go. I yeah. could do this if I wanted to. That's empowering. I, I think it's empowering. I think it's more flexible. It's like not what pe- people think of typically when they think about budgeting, which is why a lot of people <laughs> hate budgeting is <laughs> because right. it's boring and tedious and... Uh, bookkeeping. Sorry. I mean, I know you and I both like bookkeeping, so it's okay. I, but, I love bookkeeping. <laughs> but like bookkeeping, I would argue, is not budgeting. It's different. And the YNAB book and the YNAB method right. are making the argument that budgeting isn't tracking your money. Budgeting is actually making decisions about what you want the money that you have right now to do and that those decisions should align with what you care about and what you're excited about. So kind of by definition, it should be exciting and interesting because it's what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, the 
difference in timeline is bookkeeping is backward looking. Mm -hmm. What happened in the past? Let's record that accurately and get reporting on it. But budgeting in this sense is the exciting forward looking. What do I want to do with this stuff? Yeah. Yep. And another thing that I noticed when I arranged my categories by priority instead of by topic cluster or whatever you want to call it, um, it freed up so much money in my budget because now once I have my really? top, like, uh, I guess you could say, what do they call the top priorities and why not? Like your obligations, right? Like the things that you have to pay yeah. for or like you get kicked out of your house or like your electricity gets turned off or like, you know, like food, shelter, clothing, Mortgage, transportation, insurance. those things, yeah. right? Those are like your obligations. Um, once you know that those are covered, actually everything else is like totally up to you, really. I, and I don't know, what because I had been so regimented about making everything a true expense, I was basically maxing out my entire monthly income on all my true, well, so-called true expenses, you, you know, with very little wiggle room on top of that to like do fun stuff with. Now, a much higher percentage of my income can I use the word fun kind of like very loosely here because a lot of it still is like necessary, but, but you know, with varying degrees, like, 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 like the scent diffusers or whatever, right? Like I could stop that anytime. I don't need that. That's unimportant, but uh, it's fun. Yeah. So one other thing that I started doing that I had stopped doing is I started budgeting for future months again. So I don't know if that, means anything to you, Steve, but it's kind of part of rule four in YNAB, which they call age your money, which is just, you know, basically as you spend less than you make over a long period of time, you get to keep your money for longer before you have to spend it, right? Right. And if you lost your income now, you have a longer runway before yeah. the money runs out. Yeah. And so YNAB, the software, will allow you to start funding your future months before they even show up, right? So like, let's say it's January right now. Let's say I funded all of my budget categories fully for January uh, and I get paid next week. I could put that paycheck towards February and start funding February, right? And as long as you're spending less than you make, eventually, like in theory, that could go infinitely. You could fund further and further into the future. The age of your money would get older and older. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I had stopped budgeting the money like specifically assigning it to future months and i'd put it into a kind of a holding category that's like next month and i just like put all my extra money in there uh and it was kind of serving also as my emergency fund and, you know whether or not to have an emergency fund category in ynab is like a whole different topic for a different day and it really does again there's no right or wrong way but uh i just I struggle. I spend my emergency fund, okay? I'm just going to say it. If I have a fund that's called emergency fund and then I want to do something cool, I just I just do. <laughs> and it's a problem. I, it's not the biggest problem in the world, but it's a problem, right? right? Uh, I guess I'm rolling yeah. with the punches in a very liberal way at that point. But there, there was a quote in rule two about how if you have like a name on the category, it's a lot easier not to plunder that one when something comes up. Yeah. Uh, like my Christmas budget is this way. Like uh, that's that money is set aside for Christmas because I know we are going to spend it for Christmas. And so I want to make sure it is there by the time Christmas rolls around. So I almost never yeah. pull anything out of Christmas. Cause do you really want to steal from your children? Right. <laughs> like <laughs> right. do you want to take away the gifts from your children? I mean, anyway, psychologically maybe it has that effect a little bit, but 
yeah, but but when it's all in a in a big lump sum of uh, emergency fund or like uh, slush fund, you know, uh, whatever, it's it's very easy to be like, well, I can I can pull a little bit out of here because there's still plenty in there. Yep, it'll be fine. And I can just replenish it, which is yeah, tr- you know, which is true. It's true, but it's it's so much easier to keep track of. Like, I I know I pulled some out of here, but I don't know how much. Where if it's a named category and it's got a target on it, like I know exactly how much is missing out of there, and I can exactly make a plan to put it back. Yeah, and I think if I had to summarize the net like result of all these changes we've talked about that I've made to the way I do this since rereading this book, I think it would have to be that I have freed myself up to make quicker progress on the financial goals that are most important to me. And this is a good example of that because what I'm doing right yeah. now is I'm I am budgeting into future months, but I'm only budgeting my obligations categories in future months. So basically it is a real emergency fund in the sense that like I know that I have paid for January, February, March, and most of April right now. Like my obligations, they're budgeted for. So if I lost my income today, I'd have that I like I'm good for that many months, right? I don't like it's the same amount of money. The money is there behind the scenes, whether it's in one ca- budget category called emergency fund or whether it's in all those categories in future months. But just like your example with Christmas, like it actually has had a profound effect on me psychologically to the point where like it is harder for me to steal money from March, from my March mortgage to like do an extreme roll with the punches on an impulse purchase in January. I think that's fascinating. Oh, Okay. So when you say you've funded future months, it's not like you took the entire paycheck from now and allocated it to something in the future. Like it, it might just be what I'm trying to figure out is when do the non-obligation categories of future months or or the current month get funded if you're only if you're funding into the future. Oh, only. yeah. Um, so my rule of thumb, let's say I wanted a three month runway on my obligations, how I would approach that is when I get a paycheck, I would just check to see if the current month that we're in, the calendar month right now, is it fully funded completely? And then is the next calendar month funded completely? And then if yes, and I've got the obligations funded out through three months, then all the money that I have left to assign could be assigned to whatever, to my focus goal. I don't know if that makes sense. So another way to... It does, yeah. To think about it is, you know, is the current month funded fully and is the next month funded fully? And then is my obligation, are my obligations funded through, what, and it's arbitrary, it's going to be different for everybody, right? For me, maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months for you, doesn't matter. Once your obligations are funded that far in the future, then the rest you can just focus into whatever category brings you the most joy at the moment. Okay, that's cool. Because I tend to be super conservative about my money and try and, I mean, I just splurge like any anybody else, right? But you're living far enough below the income that you have enough wiggle room to be able to do this kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's really cool. And it's not extreme. It's not unlimited. It is very finite. Back to the scarcity comments that you were making before, right? But I guess what I'm realizing is that by arranging my budget this way, even though it's the exact same amount of money as I was working with before, it feels like a lot more. And that's just interesting to me. Yeah, that is really interesting. So... Thanks for coming to my TED Talk about my therapy session <laughs> about about YNAB. But we haven't even talked about the book yet. I mean, I... I oh, yeah, the book. Should we talk about some of the standout moments or... I had a bunch of quotes in here, and I think we mentioned most of them, actually. Uh, one, well, one that we haven't 
talked about yet is uh, he talks about teaching kids to budget. And there's kind of, there's at least two schools of thought here. One is you give kids an allowance and that's just, that, that's how much money they get automatically. They don't have to like do anything special to get it necessarily. And the other is they, you teach kids how to work and earn money mm-hmm. and that's how they get their money. And then uh, ideally in either case, once they have the money, then they learn how to budget and spend it. Yeah. But he, uh, Jesse seems to be more in the camp of like, the important part here is that they're learning what to do with the money once they have it. Mm-hmm. So give them the money and then teach them how to budget it. Because uh, you can always make more money and most people will. Like for most of your life, you will have the capability of making more money. Yeah, You're not at the end of your earning potential yet. And so don't focus on that piece of it yet. They yeah. can figure that part out. Teach them how to budget, how to use this finite resource and what to do with it and how to deal with the emotions that come with it and how to plan and how to spend it well and align it with your priorities and all, all those kinds of things that are uh, so much more beneficial to learn when the stakes are low and mm-hmm. you're young so that when you do come into a lot of money later in your life, you know what to do with it. Yeah. So you don't turn out like one of those lottery winners, right? <laughs> I guess. I mean, Oh yeah. Like you just suddenly get this windfall and, uh, and it ruins people's lives. Yeah. You know, I don't have kids, but I found the section of this book about teaching kids about money and how to budget to be really good. I mean, if I did have kids, I would probably try to apply a lot of what he talks about in there. And I was somewhat intrigued on his stance about like allowances versus like earning or I don't know if his stance even, but like his his discussion of allowance versus like earning the money through labor, through chores or whatever. Uh huh. And I thought maybe I was intrigued by that because I did not have an allowance as a kid, I once I got old enough, I could do chores to earn a little bit of money for like the things that I wanted to. So maybe I maybe I was having some childhood processing as I read that. But yeah, very impressive. I think for anyone who has kids and is interested in teaching them about money, that this is a great place to start. If if you want a a good book that's the other side of it, like teaching kids how to work to earn the money, uh, one that I read a couple of years ago is called The Entitlement Trap. By Richard and Linda. Oh, I've Iyer. heard that one. That one's really good too. It's got a system of like how to give kids ownership of things and teach them how to yeah earn and uh, the responsibility that comes along with that. So I don't know. I I think there's a balance here between those two uh, two ways of doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. I I don't remember exactly what the YNAB book says. I feel like he wasn't like really super opinionated on this. And he, like to your point, he's more like, no no matter how they get the money, learning how to handle the money is is more of, I think, his angle. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. He did have one quote, uh, taking away their allowance for whatever reason is just as bad as taking away their books or their musical instruments. Keep the learning going no matter what. So I don't know if that... remember the context if it was like don't punish them by taking away their allowance like they they should still get the allowance i don't think he's he's at all opposed to like uh teaching them how to earn more money right so but but they should at least have you know a baseline of this much money is coming in and it's your job to figure out what to do with it yeah yeah i like that giving them a sense of ownership and responsibility for what to do with it 
Mm-hmm. And some of the examples that he has in the book of children making choices based on the money that they have are pretty cool. Like his own kids, like what they choose to spend their money on and like how, like, you know, in the the mind of a child, they, they illustrated like the principles of YNAB almost naturally once they figured out that this is how much money they had. Like, what do you want to do with it? And, you know, uh-huh. they were able to like apply the rules better than a lot of adults, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a great book. We didn't talk much about the book, I suppose, but uh, very useful. I'm we sure... should do we should do a, like a series on each of the rules at some point. I think that would be great. Where we actually talk about <laughs> like, what's, go, go through what's what because we've I think we've mentioned all of them <laughs> yeah. here yeah. Uh, in passing, but like let's go through what what they actually are, what they mean. You know, at some point. Yeah. And I think maybe for today, a reasonable summary on this, and this comes actually from a conversation I had with a client earlier today, which is that YNAB as a personal finance method is really different from a lot of other personal finance methods because it doesn't, it's, 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 it's agnostic really towards, you know, whether you should pay off debt, whether you should save for this, how much you should save for retirement. Like it's really, mm-hmm. really values focused. Right. And so they have an ideology like Dave Ramsey has an ideology, the seven baby steps, right? The money guys have the yeah. financial order of operations, which are their like prescriptive, well, order of operations for like how to tackle your financial goals. YNAB does not have that. And I think that sets it apart. And I think that is really obvious from reading the book, which is that their prescription is that you need to do some self-reflection and figure out what you value, what you think is important and what makes you happy and then use your money to achieve that as a tool. And that's something that's really, I think that's kind of a, how I would summarize the, you know, the message of the book. And so maybe you land on the same steps that Dave Ramsey does, right. or maybe you don't. Uh, and either way, that's fine. It's your money. You are the one in charge of deciding what to do with it. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. Anyway, it's a, it's a process, but not, uh, not, not prescriptive. It's not an ideology. Well, no, I yeah. think it is. It's just that the ideology is is that you you're the best person to make the decisions about your own money, right? Okay. Yeah, and it's it's giving you a set of tools for how to how to figure that out, how to make those decisions. Like Morgan Housel in the in the psychology of money is is big on uh people don't make money decisions because they're stupid. They make it because that's what they thought was best that's what they thought was rational at the time yeah and uh maybe you're maybe you need some calibration there of what what that should be so that it aligns with your values and this is one way to get there yep well if you want more ynab content email us subscribe hello and not about money (laughs) subscribe there's plenty more where this came from yeah i'm sure we'll be discussing these principles in the future as we tackle, you know, they apply to so many things and uh, we like them and they're good rules to live by. So, yeah, it's kind of fun to do it. 